Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. China doesn't want to go to war, and you'll hear that about Russia too. But if they do... They want to be able to play on a level playing field. And they call the strategy winning without fighting. Ideally, they get what they want below the threshold of a shooting war. That's the art of the shadow war. But if they got to go to a shooting war, they want to be ready to fight. Russia, Mm. how are they waging the shadow war? What tools are they using? What battlefields are they choosing? So one, certainly in cyberspace, election interference being the most prominent, but not the only one. You know, their intention is is not just to influence the election itself, but to influence the political conversation in the U.S. and seek any division and exacerbate that division. That's why they love to occupy spaces like Black Lives Matter, gun control, even take a knee. At the military national security level, you have the agencies and the departments beginning to respond. But what still hasn't happened is our leaders articulating a strategy across the board, but also, I think, making Americans aware of the nature of this conflict at this point. At each level, if you talk to the subcommanders, if you talk to the, the guys flying the spy planes, you talk to folks in the NSA Ops Center, they will say to win this, you need a whole-of-government response. And that requires presidential leadership, and that's something that they, they haven't heard yet. And it's not Obama administration officials who are saying that. It's the folks on the front line who are saying that. Jim Shudo is CNN's chief national security correspondent. In addition to a career in journalism, Jim spent two years as a top advisor to the U.S. ambassador to China. Recently, Jim published a book, The Shadow War, Inside Russia and China's Secret Operations to Defeat America, which gives insight into the so-called hybrid wars being waged against the United States by both countries. I had a chance to sit down with Jim to discuss his book and the threat that both China and Russia pose to the United States. I'm Michael Morell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Jim, thanks for joining us today. It is great to have you on the show. Really appreciate the opportunity. So, Jim, your book, The Shadow War, Inside Russia and China's Secret Operations to Defeat America, that was published a couple months ago, so Mm -hmm. congratulations on that. Thank you. And I want to spend 
a lot of time talking about it. But before we do that, I want to ask you about your service at the U.S. Embassy Mm. in Beijing. You're a career journalist. So how did you end up working for the U.S. ambassador to Beijing? This was one of those opportunities that, that, that came my way unsolicited. Uh, but when it came, I just felt couldn't turn down the opportunity. Just too much of a learning opportunity. I'll tell you, I, I was at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. This was in 2011. Happened to be the night of the bin Laden raid. <laughs> no connection. But I found myself seated next to the incoming ambassador to China, Gary Locke. And I'd had a history of interest and in studying China. And, and so I, he and I ended up talking the whole evening about China. And then that led to a dinner and a lunch and a dinner. And then in those conversations, he came around to saying he could bring one person with him to China. And he was looking for someone kind of outside the box, not, not a typical person mm-hmm. from inside government, and asked me if I'd, be, if I'd be interested. And I hadn't thought in those terms, but I thought here was an opportunity to be inside the U.S.-China relationship at a critical time. My next question was to my wife, and, and she was willing. And then once she was, we decided to go. Yeah. So what did you learn about the relationship, about the U.S. government from being on the inside as opposed to being on the outside looking in? <clears throat> well, I think from the outside, particularly as a journalist, you can have an impression at times that, that folks, if they don't know everything, they know so much, right? You have these enormous resources of intelligence and, you know, just the reach of the State Department and, and, and access to information. And if they do know a lot, but at the end of the day, you have people working with incomplete information, making the best decisions they can. Uh, you know that better than me. Uh, and uh, trying to, to figure out how to make things happen. So that was helpful just in, you know, as I cover, and for most of my career, I've covered government and the intelligence agencies, State Department, et cetera. So it gives you a sense of how they operate. You know, they're doing their best, right? Like all of us, they're, they're doing their best with imperfect information. Don't always make the right decisions. Sometimes make the right decisions. Sometimes, uh, you know, make wrong decisions. Yeah, sure. But they do their best to get to the right place. So did you have access to intelligence? I did. I had, I had a security clearance, uh, you know, uh, top secret SCI I did, to, which was, listen, and, that was and, a privilege. Yeah, and what was your sense as a journalist, right, of seeing that? How much value did it add to your understanding vice what was available in open source? So, again, it is, first of all, it's, it's a privilege to do that. It's something you respect, as you know. Um, you learn a lot, but, again, you realize that it doesn't tell you everything, that, that you have tremendous resources and for information and then you have analysts doing their best to connect the dots and it doesn't necessarily give you a perfect answer and this is something when i cover intelligence uh, a whole host of stories i always try to make this point on the air that you know intelligence is not some sort of magic silver right. bullet it's right. not it's not a crystal ball right? right it is a lot of information and, and folks make decisions and in those reports again as you know better than me um oftentimes they'll say here's what we know here's what we don't know and here's our best guess okay the book which I think is terrific, and I think everybody should read it. Why did you write it? Why did you choose to focus on this particular topic? I'll tell you, as a journalist, through 20, 25-some-odd years of covering China and Russia and being on the ground in places where the U.S. interacts with China and Russia, it struck me that we look at this relationship in you know, one front at a time, as it were, 
uh, at least we in, in the public sphere and, and journalists, and don't connect the dots as to, as to how this whole relationship is coming together. And that folks know about the election interference. They might know a bit about Russia's uh, annexation of Crimea and so on, or China's manufacture of islands in the South China Sea. They hear about, you know, Russian bombers buzzing Alaska or ships, etc., and look at them in general in isolation and don't connect the dots that actually this is a strategy for confronting the U.S., uh, for trying to level the playing field with the U.S., undermine the U.S. where it can. Beyond that, uh, what was interesting to me was that China and Russia, two very different countries, two different histories, geographies, languages, you name it, seem to have struck struck upon a very similar way of countering the U.S., and in fact, it's not a secret strategy. It's written in their documents. You know, the, the, we've come to call the Russian approach the Gerasimov Doctrine, uh, this kind of hybrid warfare approach to, to countering the U.S. Chinese have a different name for it, winning without fighting. You know, you know, confronting the U.S., getting what you want, undermining where you can, but below the threshold of a shooting war. And that's the shadow war. Yeah, so that's the definition of a shadow war. Yes. Okay. So have we seen shadow wars before in history? Or is this a relatively new concept? And if it's new, why now? It's my it's my impression that it is relatively new. I mean, the, the shadow war tactics individually are not entirely new. There have been influence operations through the years going back to Soviet times. There's been election interference. Uh, th- there have been... Um, you know, you know, small conflicts short of all-out war for for the for the with the intention of territorial gain, all that kind of stuff. What, what struck me is that you know, bringing these all together, particularly with with technologies, is 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 new, and and it's it, part of it's a product of of a single superpower kind of world. Is that Russia and China know they can't beat us head to head in in a shooting conflict. So here's a way, you know, ultimately it's asymmetric warfare, right, Right, from two very formidable adversaries, but ultimately it's asymmetric, and it's aided by new technologies. You know, the Russians, of course, have interfered in past past elections. Cyber capabilities supercharge that, right? Then there are other elements of this, which I think a lot of Americans just aren't aware about, and one that I'm particularly fascinated with is the space element, is that— you know, we become more dependent on space. People are generally aware of that. But they don't know that Russia and China have space weapons deployed right now with the with the intention of being able to uh, blind us, weaken our capabilities militarily and even in the civilian sphere in the event of a all-out war, but even short of that. Yeah. So maybe we've seen elements of shadow wars before, but now it's come together as an actual strategy. Maybe that's yes. what's... Yes, you know. exactly. So you said, you just said something really important, is that most Americans don't understand this, Mm -hmm. right? Why not? Because, frankly, our leaders aren't talking about it that way, right? Uh, They're not connecting the dots for them. And that's that's at the very top. Uh, It's even on Capitol Hill. You hear pieces of this. I mean, the president's certainly talking about a trade aspect of this. The president talks about the theft of private sector and national security secrets, which is, I got a whole chapter in the book on that, too. That, That is part of the shadow war. Again, it's a way to level the playing field, steal our most sensitive secrets. But but connecting it into a bigger picture is something that, that you just don't see. Now, if you talk to folks in, in the intelligence agencies, in the national security sphere, they're beginning to think in this way, the national defense strategy. They talk a lot about these capabilities, but the American people don't hear it sufficiently. And, you know, you asked me earlier why I wrote the book. One is seeing these patterns and trying to draw attention to them. But the other piece is just 
I'm an American. You know, I spend a lot of time in these countries covering these countries, and I and I do it uh, driven by a sense of public service that that, that I feel I, I don't do it with any political motivation whatsoever. If you read the book, you see that I that, that I spread the blame around a bit for for the slowness among uh, American leaders, officials, etc. To see this happening, it, it's not a political issue; it's an American issue. Okay, so China and Russia. The two antagonists. Mm-hmm. What I'd love to do is take them one at a time. So let's start with China. How is China specifically waging the shadow war? What tools are they using? What battlefields are they choosing? Okay, let's let's take through one theft of our deepest secrets. Um, it, it's certainly true in the private sector sphere. I mean, this, this is one of the essential issues of the, of, of the trade war. Right? Is that U.S. companies when they operate in China? Uh, first of all, they don't have the same access that we give Chinese companies, but also Chinese companies up and steal their intellectual property. They do sure. it every day. Sometimes that's part of the agreement. Sometimes they just up and steal it. Beyond that, China is waging a very successful cyber campaign to steal our national security secrets. I, I focus on just one man in the book, a guy named Su Bin, who over the course of four years uh, with two partners in China stole hundreds of gigabytes of data on three of America's most advanced military aircraft, the F-35, the F-22, and the C-17. And folks in the Pentagon will note that China's flying three planes that look a lot like the they F-35, look, the F-22, like and the yes, C-17. They, yes, and you know do. this better yeah, than me. Yeah. And I interviewed in the book Bob Anderson, uh, who used to be in charge of the FBI's uh, counterintelligence efforts, and I asked him, what percentage of Chinese operations like this is, is the FBI aware of? And he said, if we're lucky, one in ten, ten percent. Wow. So for every Subin, you made the point. They caught Subin, granted, after four years. He's currently in prison. They did catch him, but he did a lot of damage before then. For every Subin, there are nine others yeah. who, who were doing stuff and yeah. we might not know yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. So, theft. so that's one, one front. Theft. Um, space. China has today floating at, at low Earth orbit, medium Earth orbit, and up to geostationary orbit, uh, satellites that China claims are maintenance satellites or friendly objects in space, but that U.S. Space Command, and I spent a lot of time at Space Command for the purpose of this book, views as, at a minimum, dual-use technologies, but 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 satellites that are weapons, in effect, that can either blind our satellites with directed energy weapons. I always tell people they're already lasers in space. They could ram them, old school, just blow them into a smithereens. Uh, but China also, in the last couple of years, U.S. Space Command discovered them testing and deploying a satellite with a grappling arm that has the capability of lifting another satellite out of orbit. Now, the Chinese say, oh, we've got to repair a satellite. What better way to fix it than out of orbit? Right, right, U.S. Right. is not so certain of that. And they've seen China test this capability right up to geostationary orbit. That's 22,000 miles up. To do that requires tremendous technology, situational awareness in space, etc. The U.S. is concerned about space. And China knows we have a tremendous advantage in space, particularly militarily. So that's a good place to try to take us down. Then submarine technology, China making big advances, Russia as well, but China has diesel electric submarines that are very quiet. One of them popped up in the midst of a U.S. carrier group a couple of years ago, scared the bejesus out of them, because when you don't know where a sub is, that allows That's that power yep. to project nuclear power right up to your, uh, to your shoreline. And then the final point I'll make is Old school, 19th century, as President Obama called it, territorial acquisition. Although China, putting a new twist on it in the South China Sea, just up and manufacturing, right. you know, territory, right. which has since been militarized. Right. So what's the motivation 
on the part of the Chinese? What, what are they trying to, to achieve here? Big picture, long term, to up and surpass the U.S. as the most dominant global superpower. It's been, it's been in, their, in their documents and their strategies going back to 1949. Uh, Michael Pillsbury wrote a book about this, The 100-Year Marathon. Um, and they write about it. So this is about retaining or getting back getting what they back, see as their right. rightful place at right. the top of the world, the middle kingdom kingdom at the back of the middle, you know, the middle of the universe. So, so that's With part every of Every other it. country being its vassal. Exactly. And there's a, there's a lot of history. There's a lot of uh, politics and nationalism behind that, a sense of our position having been stolen away by the West and we're going to get it back rightfully. So there's, that's a piece of it. On the other side, to at least make it a fight with the U.S. in the event of going to war. You know, U.S. intelligence officials will will say China doesn't want to go to war, and you'll hear that about Russia too. But if they do, they want to be able to to, to play on a level playing field. So, you know, and those go together, you know, and they call the strategy winning without fighting. Ideally, they get what they want below the threshold of a shooting war. Again, that's the art of the shadow war. But if they got to go to a shooting war, they want to be ready to fight. Is there a domestic political aspect to this? In China? Yeah. Absolutely. You know, I would say that, that China doesn't, is not a democracy, but it has domestic politics. That factors into the whole trade war right now in that, you know, China is as loath not to be seen as backing Absolutely. down to the U.S. as the U.S. Absolutely. is to China. So this idea that she's suddenly going to buckle, you know, I think we should be skeptical of. But big picture, again, when you speak to particularly when you speak to the Chinese today, and I spent a lot of time there. I love the country. I have so many good friends there. There is, not far below the surface, uh, a lot of pride and a lot of nationalism. Uh, We are, this is our time, you know. And again, the people share this sense that they had their rightful position taken away. I will say that generationally, it's concerning because when I was in China, when I would go to universities and meet with students, what struck me is the students were more nationalistic than their teachers. Mm. Because the students have only lived in a world where China is on the rise. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, and that, that, that should be concerning. Yeah, you know, this, this long-term aspect that you mm-hmm. talked about. I had dinner one night with four Chinese intelligence officers, and they were talking about good and bad millennia. Mm-hmm. So they were talking about this good thousand years, this bad thousand wow. years, right? And we're focused on quarters, Yeah. right? Yep. So, Jim, one of the chapters in your book focuses on the South China Sea. Mm-hmm. And I think you give a, a, a really good, excellent history of the issue. How would you summarize what happened there for Americans who might not necessarily have followed it? Okay, so, so just for, for background, South China Sea, it's right in the middle of the most important shipping lanes in the world. 40% of world commerce goes through there. But also on top of what is perceived to be enormous natural resources – uh, it's hundreds of miles from the Chinese coast. They claim it as their own historically. And then you have half a dozen other countries who claim it, who are much closer, it's by the way. It's great to see a map of it their is. view of exactly. the South China Sea, right? Well, you got <laughs> Vietnam. You have Malaysia, Indonesia, Philippines, Treaty Ally, the Philippines, by the way, who all say that it's their territorial waters. And, and it is worth, if you're at home, just Google a map of this because it's it's pretty darn far away from the Chinese coast. And historically, they have a... A map you might hear referred to as the nine dash line, where a few decades ago they just drew a line that kind of encompassed it on kind of dodgy historical basis. Anyway, you have a bunch of rocks down there; they're above the surface of the water at, at, at low tide, kind of thing. That starting in 2014, though these areas were disputed, China just goes in there, and starts building islands. They start dredging up, uh, 
dredging up the dirt and piling the dirt on top, adding thousands and thousands of acres of land over the course of just a few months, claiming them as their own, and then over time adding things like long runways and hardened um, hangars and surface-to-air missile sites. I had the opportunity, and I tell the story in the book, of flying on a U.S. surveillance plane over the South China Sea in May 2015, a P-8, as it was flying over these islands, which is part of the U.S. strategy here. So, listen, we consider this international airspace, therefore we're going to keep, keep flying over it. And we watched from up there as they were building this stuff. There were 20, 30-some-odd dredgers in each of those islands, um, and they were making fast progress. Now, China gave an assurance to President Obama they would not militarize, and they broke that assurance. And now China has what the Navy sometimes refers to as a few unsinkable aircraft carriers in the South China Sea. We're going to take a quick break, then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Jim Shudo. Every weekday afternoon, Nora O'Donnell delivers the latest breaking news and important headlines to CBS News Radio affiliates across the country. Good Thursday afternoon. Mandatory evacuations have been ordered along the Louisiana coast. A storied tradition continues. This is Water Crime Guide reporting. CBS News on the Hour with Nora O'Donnell. Weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Pacific. This is CBS News. Okay, so let's shift to Russia. Mm. I'm going to ask you the same set of questions, okay? So how are they waging the shadow war? What tools are they using? What battlefields are they choosing? Okay, so battlefields very similar to China's. So one, certainly in cyberspace, uh, election interference being the, the most prominent, but not the only one. Uh, and, and that's something that, that they did quite effectively in 2016, attempted again in 2018, and there is no question. It's not a question of if, but how much right, Russia right. attempts to interfere in 2020 right. when you talk to it's anybody in right that now. space. And yeah. it's happening as we speak. Yep. And and talk a lot about this in the book, that that some of this is election-focused, but a lot of it is is permanent in that it's every day because they, you know, their intention is, is not just to influence the election itself, but to influence the political conversation in the U.S. and seek any division and exacerbate that division. That's why they love to occupy spaces like Black Lives Matter, gun control, even take a knee. And Michael Hayden, I interviewed him for the book. He has a great story in there, and he's written about this more extensively about, you know, it was obvious to U.S. intelligence when Russia started to get into the take a knee space, you know, of course, the protests in the NFL, Mm -hmm. taking a knee during the national anthem, because uh, they were often miswriting the hashtag instead of take a knee, they were saying, take the knee. And, and Michael Hayden makes the point, you know, that, that articles are often the toughest thing to get right, right in, in right, foreign languages. Right. And that's how they knew that those were, it was an easy way to spot that those were Russian trolls who were putting them in. So, so it's, an, it's an ongoing influence game, uh, influence campaign by Russia in cyberspace. Russia al- also has weapons in space today. And the U.S. has watched them. They shadow sensitive U.S. commercial and surveillance satellites, uh, circling them like a, U-boat circling a, you know, a freighter during World War II. They, they circle them up in space, testing these capabilities, uh, both with, with the possibility of ramming and destroying satellites or blinding them with directed energy weapons, etc. Submarines. Uh, I got to take a trip on a U.S. nuclear submarine under the Arctic where they were doing, and they do these every couple of years, the ISEX exercises. See, being a journalist is cool, right? I got it. You know, it's funny, <laughs> and particularly if you like, you know, if, if you eat this stuff up like me. I, it's funny. I was, I, I was on that sub under the Arctic on my birthday last year, 
And, and a lot of my colleagues were like, oh, it's a shame you had to spend your birthday. Yeah. And I was like, you kidding me? Yeah. It was the best place I could imagine. And they made me a cake. But uh, practicing up there in these exercises, tracking Russian subs in what is a new frontier in this, a new great game over influence in the Arctic. And, and what the commanders will say is that Russian subs are getting quieter and harder to detect. And like with China, although Russia's capabilities are more advanced, a submarine that's quieter and harder to detect could pop up off your coastline and, in the event of war, launch nuclear missiles. So, so there's a military comp- competition, there's a cyber competition, there's a space competition, and then finally, there's old-school 19th-century land acquisition, Ukraine. You know, they, they, they up and stole a piece, uh, Crimea, in 2014. They still occupy large parts mm-hmm. of eastern Ukraine First as well. grab in Europe since World War II. Exactly. And I, and I tell folks all the time, because I think people think of that at Ukraine as a million miles away. I was like, it's in Europe. You know, it was seeking closer cooperation with the EU. Um, and, you know, if Russia can do that there, where do they do it next? And, and that's the concern. So their motivations, right? How does that compare to China's motivations? So big picture, Russia, and it struck me as interesting, driven by the same sense of regaining its rightful place in the world, uh, although the theft of its rightful place is more recent. They go back to 1991, the collapse of the Soviet Union, their perception, you hear this a lot from Putin, um, that they were taken advantage of by the West, etc. So getting back to being relevant again in the world, that's one piece. You also have a sense that there's zero-sum game players. Any chance they get to stick their thumb in the USI is a win for them. There's a little bit of that. Um, so I, I think those two factors, what struck me is, is a connection between China and Russia in this sense, is that Chinese leaders study the fall of the Soviet Union intensely because that's a cautionary tale from them. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, they're like, we're not going to be those guys. We got we to gotta watch that we don't collapse the way they did. So there's one chapter on Russia that I found particularly interesting, and that's a chapter on Estonia. Mm. What happened in Estonia in 2007? So this is the first chapter in the book, and I look at this something as the first salvo in the shadow war. I mean, of course, there were signs before, but in Estonia in 2007, Russia launched really the first and the largest nation-on-nation cyber attack. Um, It was was a cyber attack intended to, to really shut down and cut off Estonia. Estonia is this remarkable country right on Russia's border, a couple million people there, but extremely technologically advanced. I always remind people Skype started in Estonia. they got a pretty good track record. Um, but they've also been way ahead of the curve on doing things digitally. Uh, they voted digitally first. They banked digitally. You know, very dependent on this. So around 2007, really ahead of the game uh, for us, they're more dependent on these things than we were. And, China, and Russia launched a, a, a giant... DDoS attack, in effect, they took over uh, thousands, tens of thousands of computers in more than 100 countries, uh, created these big botnets that basically flooded Estonia with with requests for information, shut down their news, government websites, banking websites, etc. While on the ground, they had uh, kind of manufactured riots, you know, with ethnic Russians, you know, sort of expressing themselves, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, scared the bejesus out out of the Estonians because I spoke to folks, spoke to the defense minister who was in charge at the time. Their concern was, was this the preface right, to a right, land right, attack, you right, know? Right. And, and they had a lot of reason to be concerned about that. But even short of that, 
it was enough where eventually Estonia, just to get back on its feet, had to turn off the switch and cut the country off. And it was a warning sign many years before, for instance, the interference in the 2016 election, many years before these kinds of attacks that we've come to see more often, sort of North Korea's attack on Sony and elsewhere, but, but at a scale and with a skill um, that really was a warning of how far Russia was willing to go and how powerful cyber capabilities could be. So would you call it kind of the first shot? I do, I do. And, yeah. and I don't want to be too, you know, exaggerate because there were aggressive acts prior to that and aggressive state statements by, by Putin. But in terms of a nation-on-nation attack, yes, in many ways, the first, the first one. So that's a, just a great transition, I think, to American awareness of the shadow war, right? Mm. You said earlier that, that you think we were slow mm. to see this, slow to realize it as a government, as a country. Why? I talked to, I had the benefit in this book of speaking to a lot of current and former officials who were directly involved in the administration's Republican and Democrat as this was happening. Jim Clapper, Michael Hayden, current uh, head of strategic command, John Hyten, uh, Ash Carter, of course, defense secretary, John Scarlett used to head the MI6. And what they said, self-critically, in fact, was that they fell victim to mirroring uh, with both Russia and China, mirroring in that looking at Russia and China and and saying that they want what we want. Welcome them into the international system. Uh, They will liberalize. They will democratize. They will see, Russia will see if you invite them into a partnership agreement with NATO that this is good for all of us. When in reality, they looked at that system and those organizations as skewed to our will and inherently uh, skewed to our interests. And there was a lot of contradictory evidence through the years, even as leaders, again, of both parties and officials, kept to that assumption. They had trouble kind of jettisoning that assumption, and they're doing so now. Ash Carter also makes the point that, by the way, we had 9-11, and we had two wars right. going exactly. on, which we, and your exactly. resources were focused exactly. elsewhere. Exactly. Yeah. So, Jim, now that we do recognize it, mm-hmm. right, how would you characterize the American response so far? It's coming together. It's not there yet. They're discussing strategies. Certainly you, you have... At the military, national security level, you have the agencies and the departments beginning to respond. I mean, if you – I spent time in the NSA for this, and, you know, they are aggressively defending against uh, cyber attacks. And under the Trump administration, you you had to step forward, the the president enabling cyber command to be a little more forward-leaning in terms of offensive measures, not, you know, planting – cyber weapons that you could turn on in effect in the event of uh, the need for retaliatory action. So, so, so you have some moves in cyberspace. Still a debate underway about how to respond to the space threat. There, there are reasonable concerns uh, about if you weaponize as well, do you create a new space arms race? And, right. and, and will that make things even worse? Right. Right. Um, but certainly uh, Space Command is thinking in defensive terms about hardening satellites. I spoke to officials who talked about uh, kind of sending up the equivalent of carrier escorts with satellites to, to allow them to defend against these weapons. So cyber space uh, with submarines, there is an effort to bring more advanced submarines online more quickly to respond to this, uh, to operate in places where you didn't have to for a while. But now, by the way, Russia and China back there. I mean, I would remind people one consequence of the Syria war is now Russia again has a naval base in the Mediterranean. They're operating in the Mediterranean. So, so you have... You have steps at that level 
But what still hasn't happened is our leaders articulating a strategy across the board, but also, I think, making Americans aware of the nature of this conflict at this point. And, and at each level, if you talk to the subcommanders, if you talk to the, the guys flying the spy planes, you talk to folks in the NSA Ops Center, they will say, to win this, you need a whole-of-government response. And that requires presidential leadership, and that's something that they, they haven't heard yet. And it's not Obama administration officials who are saying that. It's the folks on the front line who are saying that. The political influence piece, hmm. right? How do you think we're doing on managing that? And to what extent do you think the politics of Russian interference is getting getting in the way of us doing what we need to do to stop the political influence? Piece? Enormously, because we could just say it, it's a matter of public record. You have a president, commander in chief, who denies at times that the interference even took place or at a minimum that it's important. You know, we're in an environment now where facts are partisan things. Um, And even national security issues have become extremely partisan things because uh, we know. We know that the president, uh, his senior officials are told not to bring up election interference with him. He makes an an automatic association with his victory. Uh, But that then gets to resources being directed at defense. And you see that not just with the president, but if you look at the U.S. Senate, you know, why why is it so hard to get election security measures through at this time? Because even that question has been politicized. And that that's a problem. And again, you know, when you talk to the folks who are fighting it on a daily basis, or even when you talk to sitting lawmakers of both parties who are briefed on the threat, they, they, will, they will tell you there's, there's no doubt it happened, it's happening, it's important, and they're getting better at it. Uh, and yet those things uh, have had doubts cast upon them for political reasons, and that weakens the American response. So did you give any consideration to adding Iran mm. to, to this piece, or is it is it more contained geographically and therefore you... It did. I, I did consider adding both Iran and North Korea because both of them use shadow war tactics. You know, it's asymmetric warfare, so by, by, by nature, smaller adversaries, they really have no choice. It's logical. It makes right. sense. It's right. good strategy. And... You know, North Korea and Iran have directed energy weapons. Uh, they don't quite have the capabilities of Russia and China, but in terms of dazzling satellites or blinding satellites, um, what happened in the Persian Gulf in the last month or so, clear shadow, shadow war. war right? Man, Absolutely. I mean, like, like the, the plausible deniability right. on these explosives placed on the ships, that kind of thing. And as I was watching, I was like, man, you know, that that's right on the mark. I mean, the reason I focused on Russia and China is, one, one because... When I ask the Intel folks consistently, what are your top threats? They will always put Russia and China at the top, partly just because of size and their nuclear powers. Uh, doesn't mean Iran and North Korea can't do damage. Uh, so that that's part of it. And the other piece that, that, that struck me is just that these are two very different countries, and yet they've struck on this similar approach for, for dealing with and undermining the U.S. They figured something out here. Yep, they did. So a couple of final questions, Jim. Number one, in both the introduction and conclusion of the book, you draw a parallel between the shadow war of today and America's foreign policy in the 1930s. Mm. Talk about that. Here's the thing, is that if we time-traveled ourselves back to the 1930s, before, you know, 1939 invasion of Poland, before Japan's invasion of China in 1937, you you had saber-rattling by these countries you know, at the time, that was often dismissed. Say, listen, we can talk to them, we can find common ground, 
Let's not get too caught up in this. Well, and then this was a key point that always stuck in my mind. Give them a little, and then they won't want more, right? Like give, give them the eastern stretches of, of Europe, and they're not going to want to come this way. You know, let Japan make trouble in, in China. That's as far as it's going to go. Now, I don't want to say, you know, that this is the equivalent, that, that we're facing World War III here necessarily, but it does strike me that that kind of aggression, if it's not countered, then is encouraged, and and, and that's the concern, and don't take my word for it, that's the concern of the folks who are on the front lines of this, even if it's smaller bore than a full-on war. Because if you give a signal that it's okay to occupy Ukraine in the first invasion since World War II, what are you saying about Estonia, a NATO ally? If you give ground in the South China Sea, have you sent a signal about Taiwan? When I ask folks in the Pentagon, for with both China and Russia, what are the two next possible flashpoints that are at the top of their yeah, mind? Yeah. They'll say Taiwan in Asia and Estonia in, uh, and, and that, you know, so it's, it, it may not be on the same scale, but the lesson is the same that, yeah. you, you know, granting aggression doesn't normally yeah. end too well. Yeah. So that's, that's the second question. So you mm-hmm. end each chapter with a section called lesson, right? Mm-hmm. Why did you do that? I was, tr- I feel like in, and I'm far from a teacher or a professor, I, I do feel that in this environment, in this news environment, information environment, people are kind of inundated with stuff and stories and information and warnings, etc. And I just wanted at the end of each chapter to just in a couple pages bring it down to say, here's what the smart people are telling me about what we learn from this front of this war and the next way forward. And then I try to tie that in at the end in a final chapter where I ask the smart people, I said, okay, give me 10 steps for how to respond to this. And, and they're, they're not crazy ideas. They're not even that difficult at the end of the day. Things like clear leadership and setting clear red lines. Um, but I just thought that that was, an, you know, to, to, to make this stick, I wanted to, to tell folks uh, the way forward. The book is The Shadow War, Inside Russia and China's Secret Operations to Defeat America. The author is Jim Shudo. Jim, thanks for being with us. It was great to talk to you. It's a real honor. Thank you. That was Jim Shudo. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Enya Guitart. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. Survivor's back and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist, a new co-host, the winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares. Hi! Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast.